In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, Immaculate heart of Mary, St. Pius V, St. Pius X, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Last month, you may recall, we spoke about what I call the 1965 Missal. It was the 1964 changes that Paul VI promulgated uh, through the Sacred Congregation of Rites, changes in the Mass, even while Vatican II was still going on. And if you remember, I said that 1965, they abolished the Leonine prayers, they abolished the last gospel at the end of Mass, and they abolished Psalm 42, which is prayed at the beginning of the Mass. And among other things, other things. Now, I want to depart briefly from liturgical changes to a breach in discipline. And this was a change, if you will, made in 1966. And again, it's not a liturgical change, but it's appropriate to mention it because it's not rash to say that it contributed to the breakdown of Catholic faith and morality and even discipline among Catholic people. And what I'm talking about is the 1966 Apostolic Constitution Penitemini, or as you see, as it is titled in English, On Fast and Abstinence. Paul VI issued this decree. And when you read it, it's not a very lengthy decree, but when you read it, it is coded and ambiguity, ambiguous language. And remember, we said from the beginning that modernists always cloak their designs with ambiguity so it can be interpreted in different ways. And what Paul VI began writing in this apostolic constitution, Penitemini, uh, was that All religions, he said, have always fostered a spirit of penance. And people must do penance. It sounded good in the beginning. Even though I have to tell you that, you know, Martin Luther had actually abolished all fasting and abstinence when he started his own church. To Martin Luther, penance was an insult to Christ. He said, we don't do penance. We're insulting Christ by doing penance. The same man who said, sin boldly, just believe more boldly. But Paul VI goes, is just begins this with the need for penance. And then in the second chapter of the document, he, he warns. It's like he, then he says, but we have to be careful of the danger of what he called formalism. Formalism. By formalism, he went on to explain an excessive adherence to a prescribed form of penance. And what was he talking about in particular? An excessive adherence to a prescribed form of penance? The Friday abstinence of not eating meat on Fridays. He then went on to say that penance is a more personal thing. And I quote, it's an inner conversion of one's own spirit. Unquote. With He said, and I quote again, a voluntary exercise of an external act of penance, unquote. Right? So, Paul VI says, 
We can have an adherence to a formal prescribed penance. Penance is an inner conversion of yourself to some kind of external act of penance. In other words, you decide what you're going to do for penance. The church should not be deciding that. That's the message. And then he goes on to say that the law, the days of abstinence now in the church are going to be Ash Wednesday and all Fridays during Lent. So that the other Fridays throughout the rest of the year, you may now eat meat. Friday abstinence struck down. But at the same time, he encourages everyone to have their own inner conversion and do some kind of a penance in their own life, suited to their own vocation in life. Well, the Friday abstinence is of such antiquity, no one in the church even knew when it began. What was for certain that is that it went straight back to the apostles themselves. It was never prescribed at a church council. That's how old that law was. And Paul VI, on a stroke of the pen, struck it down. In the name of avoiding a rigorous formalism and promoting everyone to do their own penance now. Now, we know fallen human nature. People do not tend to penance. We don't. People tend more to a laxity, to relaxation. And this is exactly what happened. This is exactly this, in my opinion, greatly contributed to a destruction of morality. Because a great saint once said, I believe it was St. Alphonsus de Liguori said, an unmortified race is a sinful race. An unmortified race. That Friday abstinence was the universal penance that the church required all of her children to do, beginning at, beginning at age seven until death. Unless, of course, there are grave reasons where one could, like a grave sickness or something. But the, uh, they struck it down. They had to get rid of that. They had to get rid of that too. We now go to 1967. More changes to the 1962 missile. They wasted no time in spreading their heresy of modernism by means of the liturgy. And on May 4th, 1967, Paul VI published another instruction called Tres Ad Inc. Anos. In English, it was translated into the orderly carrying out of the Constitution on the liturgy. Remember last month we talked about the first instruction, Inter Ecumenici, which brought about that 1965 changes in the Missal. That we called it the first instruction following the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy as given at Vatican II. This is now the second instruction with more changes in the Mass. And both of these instructions, Inter Ecumenici and this Tres Abhenc Anos, were literally stepping stones to the Novus Ordo Mise of 1969. In this document, it states, three years ago, the instruction Inter Ecumenici issued by the Congregation of Rites 
26 September 1964, established a number of adaptations for introduction into the sacred rites. These adaptations, uh, <clears throat> the first fruits of the general liturgical reform called for by the conciliar constitution and the liturgy, took effect on the 7th of March 1965. Their rich yield is becoming quite clear from the many reports of the bishops, which attest to an increased, more aware, and intense participation of the faithful everywhere in the liturgy, especially in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So what are they saying there? The 1964-65 changes were a complete success. We are now going to move ahead and make some more changes. And it just goes on to say here, to increase this participation even more, to make the liturgical rites, especially the Mass, clearer and better understood, as it says here, basically it says we're going to have more changes here. So even before we get to the new Mass itself, we have more changes in the Missal. Now, interesting to note, this document also states, on this occasion, it seems necessary to recall to everyone's mind that capital principle of church discipline, which the Constitution and the liturgy solemnly confirmed. And that quote is taken from the Vatican II document on the liturgy, Regulation on the, of the liturgy depends solely on the authority of the church. Therefore, no other person, not even a priest, may on his own add, take away, or change anything in the liturgy. Priests were doing that. Priests were, on their own, making their own changes. They were just doing it. My mother once told me that in the 19th, when all of this stuff started happening, she said, she said you know, you'd go to Mass, you'd, we had, you know, with the kids, and we would go. And she said it was like every week they changed something. Something was different. Even where the candlesticks were. But they were always changing something. And no one really, you know, everybody was going on with their life at the time, they knew there were changes being made, and in some parishes it was more or less. It all depended on the priest. Well, among the changes uh, in the 1967 changes here, which I'll go through quickly here, uh, concerned, first of all, genuflections. Genuflections. 1967, uh, the changes in this second instruction, Tres Abhink Anus, called for abolishing the number of times the priests genuflex during Mass. They would tell you because, remember, the whole thing here is we got to make it go faster. And the genuflections slow the Mass down, if you will. So they abolished a number of genuflections during the Mass. Among those, they abolished one uh, when the priest prays uh, uh, after he, ex- he receives the sacred host. If you'll recall in the Mass, when the priest receives the host, and after he has consumed it, he takes the pall off the chalice, he genuflects the precious blood. That was abolished. He just takes the pall off and does not genuflect. That's just one among a few other genuflections that they abolished. Kissing the altar. How many times the priest during the Mass bows down and kisses the altar? Numerous times. And why does he kiss the altar? Because the altar symbolizes Christ. It is a reverence. It is an act of love to Christ. And a unity of the priest with Christ. 1967, they abolished the kissing of the altar after the priest prays the Gloria in Excelsis Deo. Before he turns around and says, Dominus Fogiscum. They abolished the kissing of the altar after the Credo. 
And during the offertory, you recall the priest turns around and silently says, Orate Fratres. And before that, he kisses the altar. That was abolished. And all the kissing of the altar during the canon is abolished. During the offertory, uh, the sign of the cross, when the priest offers the host, he then takes the paten, the host upon it, and he makes the sign of the cross over the corporal, and he lays the host on the corporal and slides the paten underneath the corporal. The corporal is the square cloth on the altar. When he offers the chalice, and then he bring, lowers the chalice, he makes the sign of the cross over the altar, puts the chalice down. Both those signs of the cross were abolished in 1967. In the canon of the Mass, uh, a few signs of the crosses were abolished at the beginning of the canon. Instead of making three over the sacred oblata, we call it, it's only one now. And this is perhaps the most significant. After the consecration of the, the, the host and the wine, the host into the body of Christ, the wine into the blood of Christ, after the consecration, the priest always holds his fingers like this until they're purified at the end of Mass. 1967. The celebrant need not join thumb and forefinger. Should any particle of the host remain on his fingers, he should simply rub his fingers together over the paten. The paten is the gold plate. Priest is no longer obliged to hold his fingers together. I always thought that began in the new mass. It was already in place in 1967. Something else very significant in the 1967 change in regard to Holy Communion. The communion rite for the priest and the people is to have the following arrangement. After the priest says, Panam Celestem Accipiam, that's when he says, Panam Celestem Accipiam, he takes the host into his hands and he says three times, Domine non sum dignus. And then he receives. That's changed now. After he says, Panam Celestem Accipiam, he is to turn around and hold the host towards the people before he receives it. Then he says, Ecce Agnus Dei, Ecce qui toli peccata mundi. And then he says three times, Domine non sum dignus. Then he turns back to the altar, and then he is to consume the host and the chalice. The difference. The priest said his own Domine non sum dignus. He received. Then he turned around with the host from the ciborium and said, Exce agnus dei, Domine non sum dignus for the faithful. Now we no longer have the priest praying his own. And the reason, the, the reason behind that is to break down that separation between the priest offering the sacrifice and the faithful attending. Now they're the same. Now he's just a mere spokesman for an assembly of people and not a sacrificing priest. In regard to requiem masses, black is no longer obligatory. The color black of the vestments is no longer obligatory. Now one may use violet. But if the bishops decide to use another color for some grave reason, they're free to do that. Church always used black at a requiem mass. And now that went away. And of course, you know it's white now. Uh, last thing in regard to vestments. And among the priestly vestments, there's the vestment that hangs off the sleeve, the left sleeve of the priest. It's called the maniple. 
And the use of the maniple goes back to the earliest centuries of the church. In fact, it is said it originated as a kind of cloth that hung over the priest's arm so that he could wipe the tears from his face as he offered the holy sacrifice at the Mass. The maniple was abolished. And as Bishop Kelly once told me, how quickly the priests were to get rid of the maniple, they didn't like it. They were glad it was gone. What is also interesting is that the priest was now allowed to wear the chasuble when he said the asparagus before high mass. If you attend the high mass on Sundays, you notice we're wearing what's called a cope, a cape-like thing, a liturgical vestment. It's a cope. And then after we walk down the center aisle, we pray the asparagus prayer over the people and bless everyone. We process back to the altar. The cope comes off and the chasuble comes on. 1967, they changed that. And that is very significant. Because the chasuble is called, it is strictly speaking, a mass vestment. It is only used during the mass. When there were other things like the asparagus, or when, we, when there's the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday connected with the mass, Father doesn't impose ashes wearing the chasuble. He has a cope on. 1967, they changed that. Uh, the priest wasn't even allowed to wear the mass vestments off the altar and mingle with the people. It was, that was not allowed. And by that I mean he can't wear the vestments and then after, after mass and then go out into like the vestibule and shake everybody's hand and talk to everybody. You ever see that? They go out there. I remember I was in St. Louis a few months ago. We were driving past this uh, church on the way to the airport, and there's this young priest out there in front of the new church there, and he's got this green vestment-like thing on, and he's talking to everybody. Church never allowed that. In the early centuries of the church, actually, one of the, one of the early popes decreed the mass vestments are not to be worn outside of the sacred liturgy. We're just like everyday wear. With the changes established by Trez Abhink Anos, the stage was firmly set for the promulgation of the Novus Ordo Missae. And it was in this past December in the National Catholic Register newspaper that I read an article published on the front page of the paper with this title. The Mass of Paul VI Turns 50. The article opens with these words. The Second Vatican Council brought about a sea of change in many aspects of the Catholic Church. And none more so than 50 years ago when the new Mass of Paul VI, the Novus Ordo, the new order of Mass, was officially promulgated on November 30th 1969. And thus, the new Mass is now over 50 years old. Hardly had the changes of 1967 been put into practice when on April 3rd, 1969, Paul VI issued his apostolic constitution, Missalis Romani, promulgating a new order of mass. Which was to take effect, as I said, the following first Sunday of Advent of that year, 1969. 1969 was a bad year. But it wasn't totally bad. 
because that was the year I was born. <laughs> there was some light there, right? In the midst of all the darkness. <laughs> now, while the new Mass was officially promulgated on that date, in the United States, however, it became official on Palm Sunday, March 22, 1970. This book was issued to all the pastors around the country. The general instruction in the new order of Mass. The name up there, Leo J. Lyons, this was his book that I picked up at a book sale in a library about 40 years ago. Maybe not 40. (laughs) The general instruction in the new order of Mass was issued to all the pastors of this country. And some people ask, well, why why the delay in the United States? Why did it take so long, three more months before the new Mass became effective here? And the reason is that the International Committee on English in the Liturgy needed time. They needed time to prepare a common English translation of the new Latin Mass of Paul VI. Because when Paul VI issued, promulgated the new Mass, it was in Latin. It's in Latin. And as we'll see here, we'll be talking about the vernacular here. They needed time to translate it. All these liturgical changes, beginning in 1964, find their origin. I just want to remind you, they find their origin in Vatican II. And in particular, the Vatican II document called Sacrosanctum Concilium, on the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And I remind you of that because we have to be so clear, nothing good came out of Vatican II. It's all bad. It's all bad. But that document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, stated that the right of Mass, and this is the Vatican II document, the right of the Mass is to be revised in such a way that the intrinsic nature and purpose of the several parts and all the connections between them can be clearly manifested and the devout and active participation of the faithful more easily achieved. So what are we saying here? This Vatican II document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which called for revision of the liturgy, is saying we have to change the Mass for two reasons. One, so it can be clearly understood. As if for the last 400 years, no one understood the Mass. And secondly, we have to change the Mass so the people will have a devout, note that word devout when we look at a picture later on here, a devout and active participation of the faithful. So I mention this, those are the reasons given at Vatican II why there has to be a total revision of the Mass. In 1965, or 64, 65, and the 1967 changes, as I said, were just mere stepping stones while they were at work getting this thing uh, created. So in regard to the new Mass, um, we're going to look at it briefly from different points of view here. We're not going to do a, a total overhaul here into it. Um, the first thing I would mention is the use of the vernacular language. The use of the vernacular. Do you remember when I told you the vernacular was introduced into the liturgy in 1950? 
and the right of Holy Saturday. Remember we mentioned that in a conference some time ago? 1950, they allowed the vernacular for the first time. And down through the years, we saw in some of the other changes in 1950, 1955 Holy Week, we saw more use of the vernacular. We saw in the 1960s changes, the paternoster could be said in the vernacular, the people praying it with the priest. So little by little, we're bringing the vernacular language in. And now, with the new mass of 1969, the Novus Ordo Mise, the vernacular could be used in full. The entire liturgy. Please note, though, the clever modernists did not say that Latin was outlawed. They never outlawed it. Rather, the Latin was supposed to be the standard. The Mass was supposed to be in Latin, and only with the permission of the local bishop could they use the vernacular for it. That's actually Masali's. That's in here. It's in here. That's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. The Novus Ordo Mise was immediately used in the vernacular. As you know, it was not long. Some of you remember, it was not long before the Latin entirely disappeared. It was just gone. I think I, I told you, I might have told you this, you know, what my mother told me, I, I believe it was like around nine, just after 1967, they were in the church there, and they already started the folk masses in this particular church. They had the guitars and the tambourines going. And Mom said it all started, and the people were all complaining. They were grumbling. And the priest had been sitting down, and he got up, he saw what was happening. He went to the altar. He kissed the altar, turned around, and sang out Dominus Fobiscum. And everybody sang out at Spiritu Tuo. The following week, the tambourine player and the guitar player were not in the sanctuary. But after the new Mass was promulgated, they were back. Because the people were now ready. They weren't ready yet for that. Their plan, though, on the part of the modernists all the time was to eradicate Latin. Even though you will read things that John the 23rd and Paul the 6th state on how they praise the use of the Latin language and how sublime it is and how necessary it is, their plan was to eradicate the Latin, the venerable language of the church. And why Latin is Catholic, so to speak. Latin is became the language of the church. And more importantly, it's a dead language. You cannot alter its meanings. You cannot be ambiguous with Latin. It either is or it isn't. You cannot change the terminology. It's no wonder, even in the seminaries, Theology, and even in some seminaries, philosophy was taught in Latin. And it was very straightforward. And it wasn't long in the seminaries that the Latin was gone. They got rid of it. And all of these interpretations start coming in. So that's the vernacular. The second thing here is the change in the order of the Mass. The Roman Catholic Mass consisted of two parts. The Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful. If you look at your daily Missal, your Sunday Missal, and you find the, the beginning of the ordinary of the Mass, you will see... Mass of the Catechumens. And then, after the Nicene Creed, you'll see Mass of the Faithful, where the Offertory begins. 
This division of the Roman rite goes back to most ancient times, where the practice was to allow catechumens. Remember, catechumens are those who are studying the faith and who are not yet baptized. They were only allowed to attend the Mass up to the Gospel. Then they had to leave. They were not allowed to attend the Mass of the faithful. The mystery of faith. They were not allowed to see the consecration. The mystery of faith. Over time, the discipline of the church was relaxed as the faith was spreading throughout the world and paganism and idolatry were slowly but surely lessening throughout the world. The church lessened that discipline for a good and holy reason. But she holds on to her traditions and she's held on to that division of the mass, mass of the catechumens and mass of the faithful. The new mass changed that. In the new mass of Paul VI, there are four divisions. There's what is called the initial rites. And secondly, you have the liturgy of the word. Then you have the liturgy of the Eucharist, the third part. And the final part is called the concluding rites. And I want to just briefly uh, go through these four things here. In the initial rites, the priest is not directed by very uh, strict, if you will, rubrics on how he processes to the altar uh, and with the reverence he is supposed to carry himself. His hands folded with the way his hands would hold the chalice, his eyes down. When the priest processes to the altar, our eyes are down. Our hands are folded or we are holding the chalice with reverence and we are walking with a reverence. Nor does the new Mass begin with the venerable words, in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti, amen. In the new Mass, and especially with the passage of time, how often do we see the so-called priests walk out into the so-called sanctuary with their arms at their side? And looking about... I happened to be at Our Lady of Victory Basilica in Buffalo showing the seminarians a beautiful basilica. The only thing they changed was they put a, a marble table in the sanctuary. They left everything else untouched. It was such a beautiful place. And I remember we were there just as they were having a wedding there. And I remember watching the priest come out. As he's coming out, waving everybody like this. You know, comes to the table. He does like a bow, and then he turns around. He says, "Good evening." That's the start of mass. Perhaps some of you remember when they said, "Good morning." Good morning, and then they would say, "May the grace and the love of God the Father, etc., etc., be with you." Right? It sounded good. May the grace of God the Father and the love of Jesus Christ, something along those lines, they say. That actually is likened to St. Paul's greetings in his epistles. That's how St. Paul opens his epistles. So what's wrong with that? Well, the problem is that is acceptable to Protestants. But Protestants do not accept, for the most part, in nomine patris, et filii, et spiritus sancti, amen. They reject that. But they can accept, may the grace of God be with you. This initial, initiate, initial rite here is followed by a penitential rite, at which both the priest and the people confess, as it were, that they are sinners. 
but no longer is said the venerable confidior by the priest. And then the confidior is said by the people through the server at the altar. Two confidiors at the beginning of Mass, the one by the priest, the one by the faithful. And they say it through the server. In the liturgy of the Word, the second part of the new Mass, there are lessons read by lay people who are called lectors. They read a passage from Scripture, and then, of course, there's a passage taken from the Gospel. By the way, the gospel, um, the cycle went from a one-year cycle to a three-year cycle. By that I mean, in the traditional mass, the gospel is the same every year on those particular Sundays. Thirteenth Sunday after Pentecost, it's the same gospel we read. First Sunday of Advent, we read the same gospel each year. And the changes here, they made it a three-year cycle. Every three years, the gospel repeats. Now, some people said, isn't that wonderful? We have more variety. The church had a one-year cycle for a very good reason. Because all those epistles and gospels read every year on those Sundays are powerful reminders for the priest and for the faithful something they need to do in their spiritual life. And every year we can find something new from that gospel and for our life, or we are given a powerful reminder of something we should be doing. The church had that one-year cycle for a very good reason, a very holy reason. She knows what her children need. The third part of the new Mass, the liturgy of the Eucharist, it replaced the Mass of the Faithful, the Offertory, the Canon, and the Communion. And very simply, the Offertory prayers were either replaced, they were rewritten, but all were shortened to make the Offertory as short as possible possible. And then, of course, they had the procession of the gifts, the bringing of the gifts, that is, the bread and wine to the table. The bringing of the bread and wine to the table. Uh, Now that is often done by someone is picked to do that. Someone among the laity is picked to do that. Uh, After the offertory, there's no more canon of the Mass. And I think I explained this to you already, the canon. Canon from the Greek word kanon, which means the rule. Meaning the rule, the way uh, of consecrating the body and blood of Christ. They changed it to Eucharistic prayers. And there's three different kinds in, in the new Mass that the priest can pick. He's free to pick whichever one he wants to do. I don't know if you know now, they actually write their own liturgies. This uh, Monsignor Fowler from the Archdiocese of New York told me that they often would pick out one of the layperson in the congregation, would write a liturgy, and that's what they would use for their celebration of their new Mass. Uh, furthermore, the many signs of the cross that the priest made over the bread and wine at the offertory and then over the body and blood of Christ, we've already mentioned that they abolished quite a few of these. By the time we get to the new mass, only once, only once now does the priest make the sign of the cross and it's over the bread and the wine before the consecration, only once. Never after the consecration does he do it. Remember we talked about that when I introduced to Father Antonelli, who said it was a scandal to Protestants that the priest made the sign of the cross over the body and blood of Christ, as if we can bless Christ. So only one. 
When I speak to you about the Atadi Ani intervention in a future conference, I will address the change in the words of consecration. For now, I want to mention here what liturgists of the New Mass called the sign of peace. Because if there were ever a disruption at Mass, the sign of peace. Right? I think I told, when I was growing up, my mother had left the local parish in the early 1970s. I never grew up with the New Mass. We went to the local Catholic grade school when I was in first grade. We were still there for it. But my mother made arrangements with the principal that we were never to go to the daily Mass. My father never knew that. (laughs) My mother made her, we were never to go to the new Mass. And when my sisters were in Catholic high school, Mother Macaulay High School, they had to go or they couldn't go to the school. So my mom said, you can go, but you have to sit and not participate. And for four years, how my sisters would get these looks, because they never went to communion. They never went to communion In the general instruction for the new order of Mass, it talks about the right of peace. And this actually states, before the people share the same bread, bread, that's what they call it. Before the people share the same bread, They must express their love for one another and beg of peace and unity in the church and peace with all mankind. And to do that, they instituted this right of peace uh, among the people. Now, This idea of this right of peace in the Mass, it's actually based in a tradition. It's actually based in a liturgical practice. And what I'm talking about is the the kiss of peace, as it was called in tradition, that occurs at a solemn high Mass or a solemn high pontifical mass offered by a bishop. I'm sure you've all seen a solemn high mass where you have the celebrant, you have a deacon, and a subdeacon. And at the solemn high mass, just after the Agnus Dei, when the first prayer before Holy Communion is, uh, is said, which is a prayer for peace and unity, The priest bows down, prays that prayer. The deacon comes to his right. He prays the prayer. They both kiss the altar, and they turn to each other. The priest says this, pox tecum. The deacon answers, et cum spiritu tuol. Peace be with you, and also with you, of course. Then the deacon goes to the subdeacon, pox tecum, et cum spiritu tuol. And if there are other clerics, tonsured clerics in the sanctuary, they also receive the pox, we call it, the peace. That was a practice from most ancient times. And it was done. It was done to show, promote, foster a unity of the clergy and a peace in the church. But it was always done with reverence. There was always a dignity. Some of you know by experience that this was not done with dignity in the new mass. There we have a sign of peace in the new mass. Furthermore, it was often done with disorder and chaos that breaks out in the pews. Some people simply extending hands to them Others making their rounds in the church, giving hugs, and some even kissing each other in the pews. (coughs) 
Here's the chaos. Look at that. That's the chaos that ensues. Perhaps after the manner in which they treat the so-called Holy Eucharist, or after they speaking out loud in the church when they walk in as if they're in the grocery store, this ranks among the most irreverent and disedifying features of the new Mass. It is chaos. It is disrespect. It is not holy. And it does not foster sanctity or their so-called peace. It's a show and a gimmick. And finally, in the liturgy of the Eucharist, I want to address, I might not be able to get all three tonight. I don't want to keep you there too late, but I want to address communion under both species. Communion under the species of the sacred host and the precious blood. Communion in the hand. And finally, something completely outrageous, Eucharistic ministers who are called extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist. The communion under both species, some of you know in the Catholic Eastern Rites, Holy Communion was and is received under both species. This goes back to most ancient times. In the Roman Rite, the practice of administering Holy Communion uh, under both species was to, to what extent is uncertain. It was not like the Eastern Rites. It wasn't like the Ukrainian Rite. It wasn't like the Byzantine Rite. It's uncertain. What is certain is that by the time we get to the 13th century, the practice of receiving Holy Communion under both species was long, long discontinued. They stopped. In the Roman Rite, you only received the sacred host. The Greek schism of 1054, that was among the other things that the Greek patriarch of Constantinople complained against the Roman Rite. He called us heretics because we, the Romans used unleavened bread. We were heretical according to the Greek Orthodox Church for using unleavened bread. But it's also, they didn't like the fact that communion was only under one species. St. Thomas Aquinas gives three reasons why communion should be received only under one species. He says, number one, a danger of spilling the precious blood. Number two, the difficulty in providing sacred vessels. The difficulty in providing sacred You could not easily obtain a gold chalice or a chalice made of silver or some kind of a metal, but the inside cup must be gold. And thirdly, St. Thomas says, there was a danger of, of the rise of false opinions. And by that he meant people would erroneously believe they needed to receive both the sacred host and the precious blood in order to receive the whole Christ. The whole Christ is received in the host. While there were a few controversies and heresies after St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, it was Martin Luther who stirred this up again in the 16th century insisting that the laity should decide under what species they wish to communicate. Luther, and of course everything he heretically taught and erroneously held, was condemned at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent infallibly declared as heresy any uh, the, the thought 
the belief or the doctrine that one must receive both species in order to receive the whole Christ. Council of Trent infallibly condemned that, called it heresy. But the general instruction for the new Mass expressly states that the faithful may receive under both species. That's where it started. It always puts a qualification, an ambiguous qualification, and the ambiguous qualification here is where it is customary the faithful may receive under both species, where it is customary. It wasn't customary anywhere. Although I should say there were certain parts of Europe that certain bishops with the approval of the Holy See did allow it. But I have to tell you, there is not a liturgical book that I have seen. I have poured through canon law. I poured through a number of moral theology books. I have poured through, as I say, a number of liturgical books. There is no right of administering the precious blood. And the Rituale Romanum, the Roman ritual, when we administer Holy Communion outside of Mass, there is a right that we have to follow. There is nothing in the Roman rite for administering the precious blood. One moral theologian I actually read said, it can never be done. It can never be done. Well, I don't believe it's rash to say that this communion under both species did bring about an irreverence and a disrespect and even a loss of faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. How are they able to do this? St. Thomas says you have to have sacred vessels to do this. Well, they changed the laws. You no longer had to use a chalice that had a gold cup that was gold-plated. You could use pewter. You could uh, use plastic. You could use glass. You didn't have to have gold anymore. And it's interesting to note, when they changed that, the priests stopped using the beautiful chalices, the gold chalices. Bishop Kelly went to this place called Adrian Hamer's, where we got our chalices in Larchmont, New York. Bishop Kelly was in there looking for some liturgy. This is in the early 19th, this is not long after his ordination where he was setting things up here. Uh, and he's in there, and he became friends with Mrs. Hamer's. And she had a priest, a local priest, who brought in a beautiful chalice, solid sterling silver, completely gold-plated, not just the inside cup, completely gold-plated, ornate, beautiful chalice. He wanted to get rid of it. He wanted a pewter one. And uh, she was so mad at him, because he asked, how much will you give me for it? She said, I'll give you $25 for it. He took it. That chalice was worth thousands. Yeah, he he was more about getting rid of this beautiful chalice and having this hideous pewter cup. When Bishop Kelly was in there looking around, she gave it to him. She just gave it to him. When he told her who he was, what he was doing, she was so impressed, breathed a sigh of relief, there was still a priest who had the faith and who appreciated beautiful Catholic uh, sacred vessels. She gave it to him. This is what they do. This is what they do here. Communion cups. 
right? Stackable, smooth rim, ultra clear, recyclable, 1,000 cups. Right? Isn't that, isn't that just absolutely disgusting? Right? That's what they do. They have it on a little tray and they pass it around. Yeah. And you can be sure things spill. Yeah, it spills. If it's, again, the so-called, if it is the precious blood, what sacrileges have gone on in the last 50 years? I'm just going to cover um, communion in the hand, and we'll call it we'll call it a night. All right, we'll have to touch on Eucharistic ministers. I'm already kind of worked up right now, anyway, so we don't want to get into right. Um, I'm getting everyone else worked up too, right? Now. <laughs> right. We're just going to finish communion in the hand here, and according to a number of authors. The practice of receiving communion in the hand. And by the way, when they brought in communion in the hand, they kind of got rid of this. This kind of went off to the side, the communion under both species, because they would often dip the host. Yeah? But when they did communion in the hand, they couldn't do that anymore. Right? So communion in the hand, the practice of it, began not at the new mass, not in the wake of the new mass, but it began in the mid-1960s in the wake of Vatican II. It was one of those changes that priests or bishops just did. And where did it begin? According to a number of authors, Holland began in Holland. And it spread to France, to Belgium, and to Germany. They started giving communion in the hand. Word got to the Vatican Paul VI in 1969, four or five years later, Paul VI issued a directive called Memoriale Domini, in which he absolutely forbade the practice of communion in the hand, calling it an irreverence to the sacrament. But it continued. And Paul VI, long story short, said, okay, we can do it. So much for an irreverence to the sacrament, right? We can do it. It was going on in Europe long before it hit this country. This is the man. This man here, he was Archbishop at the time, Archbishop Joseph Bernadine in the mid-1970s. It was through his Efforts, unfailing, strong efforts that communion in the hand was brought to this country. He's the one that got it through, pushed the bishops of this country to do it. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, you can read things they wrote where they were against communion in the hand, but a picture says a thousand words. John Paul II gives communion in the hand. Benedict XVI gives communion in the hand. A certain conservative priest named Father Richard Heilman of the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin, said this about communion in the hand. And this is what was recently reported to him in the last four or five years, in an article I found. One of the deacons in his church, remember they're lay deacons, the lay diaconate. One of the deacons said to him, he saw a mother receive communion in her hand, take it to her little toddler, two, three-year-old, break it in half and give it to him as if it were a cookie. Four or five times a year, this deacon said, I have to stop someone who takes the host and starts to walk out of the church without consuming it. Once or twice a month, I encounter the droppers, the people who receive it and then just drop it on the floor and don't bother picking it up. (coughs) 
This deacon also said, after the Sunday service, we have found hosts in the hymnals under the pew. We have found hosts even lying on the bathroom floor of the church. Some in the parking lot. That's just in the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin. We can conclude that the widespread practice of communion in the hand again brought about a despicable lack of reverence and a loss of faith. And I have no doubt that it's no surprise, as I've mentioned already, seven out of ten Catholics in the United States do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They don't believe it. Why would they? Why would they? That's how they treat it. Right? Why would they? We'll stop there and we'll go on with Eucharistic ministers in our next conference where we will also touch on the involvement of six Protestant ministers, as many of you know, who helped write the new Mass. They were not just passive advisors who sat back and nodded their head. They were active participants in the structuring of the new Mass and the wording, the wording of the new Mass. And hopefully we will also begin our uh, survey of the Italiani intervention. Why don't we say a prayer and then anybody wants to have a question, please approach us here. I'm all ready to go. <laughs> and let's pray and thank to thank God for our Catholic faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, Immaculate Heart of Mary, St. Joseph, St. Pius X, St. Pius V. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.